She explores and evokes the non-spaces of black experience, the experience through which the African captive became a slave, became a non-person, became alienated from personhood. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone, sometimes I'm dining with friends, and sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Diversity Dish to this very special episode of Diversity Dish. If you haven't already heard, Today and the last Tuesday of this month, March 2022, I'm going to be doing a two-part series on badass Black women in history to celebrate this Women's History Month. Of course, we know that we should and need to be celebrating women all year long. But because this month is dedicated to this, I wanted to make sure that I amplified Black voices and that I shared with you some amazing Black women in history because they are the ones who tend to be less known, lesser known, lesser amplified. Today, I'm going to start with amazing women in history, all having an incredible impact on our lives as we know it. Friends, the first person I want to share with you is Ana Kaona. She comes from the beautiful island of Hispaniola, which is the island of the Dominican Republic and Haiti. And her name means golden flower. She was a Taino kakika or female Kakik, which means a chief. She was also a religious expert, a poet, and a composer in Zaragua. Zaragua. Now, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it properly because I could not find a phonetic breakdown. But Zaragua was one of the five kingdoms on the island of Hispaniola when she was born. So she was born right around ooh, 1474. And she was sister to Boekio, who was the ruler of Zarugua once his father passed away. But once he passed away, his sister, Ana Kaona, succeeded him. Under her rule, the Spanish settlers and the Tainos, who were the natives of the island of Zarugua, coexisted and they intermarried. Okay, so basically where she was born, she was born in Yaguana, which is present-day Leogan, Haiti, the capital of Little Spain around 1474. Her name was derived from the Taino word Ana, meaning flower, and Kaona, meaning gold, golden. Ana Kaona's brother, Buecchio, was a local chieftain. 
He extended his rule in 1475 to include all the territories west of Zaragua. Through consolidation of his influence and power, Boekio married Ana Caona, his sister, to Caonabo, Cacique of Maguana. So she was married to another chief of one of the five kingdoms of the island. Together, they had one daughter. In 1492, Christopher Columbus arrived in the kingdom of Marien, present-day Mol, Saint-Nicolas, Haiti. He was in search of the direct route to India. We all know this. He didn't know where he was going. He was lost, okay? Once he got there, he was greeted by the Tainos, and they were much small, smaller in stature than the Spaniards, right? And when he arrived, they gifted him with gold, corn, and other items. So no doubt this guy got there. They greeted him with gold and corn. And he was like, ooh, look at this gold. There's gold here. We are about to be rich. And so the crown established a colony there. And where they were going to excavate for gold and other precious metals. Mind you, these people were sharing freely and this guy rolls up and he's like, oh, they got gold. And so he sends word and the Spanish uh, crown sends back and says, yeah, let's take this land. It's ours now because we're going to get us some gold. And the Taino, who are native to the island, were kidnapped and enslaved to satisfy the needs of the crown. Many of the Taino women were raped, and those Tainos who resisted the Spaniards were murdered. Same old, same old, right? That's the story. Remember the Kakika that Ana Kaona was married to? His name was Kaonabo. Kaonabo. I really hope I'm doing some justice to these names. Kaonabo. He was arrested in 1493. Remember, Columbus got there in 1492. He was arrested in 1493 for ordering the destruction of La Navidad, a Spanish colony in the northwestern part of the island and its people. He was being shipped to Spain but died in a shipwreck during the journey. When Coanaboa was captured, Anacaona returned to Zarugua and served an advisor to her brother, right? All this was happening while her brother's still alive. In 1498, Boecchio, her brother, was confronted by Bartholomew Columbus, brother to Christopher Columbus, and founder of the city of Santo Domingo, who arrived in Zaragua with his troops to subdue Boecchio and conquer his territory. The purpose of the Spaniards in doing this was to get gold. Again, greed. These people just want gold. They're like, get out of our way. Let us do what we want to do because we want your gold. With his power weekend, Boekio advised by Ana Coana, she decided to recognize the sovereignty of the Catholic monarchs. Instead of fighting, he committed himself to paying the tribute levied by the Spaniards with products such as cotton, bread, corn, and fish. So after his death in 1500, Anacoana ruled as Caica until her execution in 1503. So 
basically, she got to rule as a kakika until her execution in 1503. She didn't even get a chance to do a lot, but she, under her rule, everybody lived peacefully. Right, and she was a woman ruler. I don't know how often that had happened back in the day, but she was a woman ruler. She advised her brother. She supported her husband, who was also a chief of another kingdom. And then when they both died, she became the chief of her kingdom and ruled with peace. But in fall of 1503, the governor, Nicholas Ovando, and his party of 300 traveled to Zarugua, where they received a lavish ceremony by Ana Caona, her nobles, and several Taino chiefs, because there were five kingdoms, so there were other Taino chiefs. While the Taino presented the reception as a gesture of welcome, the Spanish saw it as being an elaborate distraction. So here's where... What you're thinking is usually what you're projecting. So they were thinking that they were going to invade. So they then kind of said, oh, these people, they're playing us. They're trying to distract us. So Ovando's party was under the impression that Ana Kauna and the Taino chiefs who were at the reception were planning an insurrection. Only if you're planning some shit do you think that other people are planning some shit, right? Just because they welcomed you doesn't mean that they're planning anything. And so they decided that that's what was happening. So Ovando lured the chiefs into the cani, which is a large hut, for, for a Spanish tournament and gave the signal for the Spaniards to seize and bind the caciques. Right? So they took these chiefs, lured them in here, and then bound them. They were burned inside that large hut. And then those who were of lower rank were slaughtered outside. Anakaona was hanged. 1503. So they're thinking that it's possible that the accuracy of the accounts are a little bit sketchy, of course, because they're written way back in the day and they're written by third-person accounts. But still, here's, here's some of the reasons why. Um, they, some of the accounts made it seem like everything was perfectly segregated ar- along racial lines. Of course, now we're talking racial now. I'm not sure that racial was a thing back then, but they're trying to make it seem that it was fighting along racial lines. The two groups, but the two groups had coexisted and intermarried peacefully for six years, right? So three years while her brother was ruling and three years while she was ruling, everyone was hanging out, chilling out, and they were marrying each other, loving each other, living fine. So it really couldn't have been that they were like two separate groups that were like, oh, we're Spanish, and oh, you're Taino, and oh, we're going to kill each other. No, I don't think so. So there's that. And then it's not clear 
why the Spaniards would lure the Tainos into a trap. Plus, the Zarugua caciques were respected as some of the most intelligent people on the island. So that means that they would not be lured to a hut if they were planning their own revolt, right? Remember when I said that these people were probably planning something, so they projected it on the caciques? That's what happened. That's possibly what happened. It just doesn't make sense that they would have all just gone if they were planning and a revolt, that they all went into this place together and they were all hanging out and then they allowed themselves to be killed. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that's how things would have happened. But Ana Kaona, as a poet and composer, is memorialized in contemporary art and literature across the Caribbean. There's a statue commemorating her legacy, and it's in Leogan, Haiti, and in the tallest building in the Korean, Torre Anacaona 27 is named for her in the Dominican Republic. There's also a song, Anacaona, with lead vocals by Cheo Feliciano, popularizing her story. So now you know Ana Kaona. Why don't you do a little bit of digging? I've just given you the highlights and the information, but that's a badass woman in history that we all should know. She was a chief. She supported her people and she died for her people. She was an indigenous woman. She was not black. She was an indigenous woman, a Taino woman, but she is highly revered by the people of Haiti and the Dominican Republic as someone who is worth remembering in history. Ana Kaona. Remember her name. The next person I'd like to introduce you to is someone who is live right now. Most of the people I'm talking to you about are unfortunately have passed on to the nether plane. But this woman is currently alive. Her name is Saida Hartman, and she was born in 1960. And she is an American writer and academic focusing on African-American studies. She's currently working as a university professor at Columbia University. She was born in Brooklyn. She worked at the University of California in Berkeley from 92 to 2006, where she was part of the Department of English and African-American Studies. Then, in 2007, she joined the faculty of Columbia University, specializing in African-American literature and history. In 2022, she was promoted to university professor at Columbia. She has been a Fulbright, Rockefeller, Whitney Oates, and University of California President's Fellow and was awarded the 2007 Narrative Prize from Narrative Magazine and the Gustav Myers Award for Human Rights. She also won a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2019. Her major fields of interest are African-American and American literature and cultural history, slavery, law and literature, gender studies, and performance studies. She's on the editorial board of the journal Kalalu. She is the author of the influential scenes of subject, subjection, terror, slavery, and self-making in 19th century America, Lose Your Mother, 
a journey along the Atlantic slave route, and wayward lives, beautiful experiments, intimate histories of social upheaval. Saida Hartman introduces the idea of critical fabulation in her article, Venus in Two Acts. What is critical fabulation? I'm going to tell you right now. Critical fabulation is a tool that she uses in her scholarly practice to make productive sense of the gaps and silences in the archive of transatlantic slavery that absent the voices of enslaved women, Hartman writes, I think of my work as bridging theory and narrative. I'm very committed to a storied articulation of ideas, but working with concepts as building blocks enables me to think about situation and character as well as my own key terms. Basically, what she's saying is that it's very hard to know what the voices of the enslaved women were at the time. So she uses her situation to characterize some of these women to fill them out and make them more human. She also theorizes the afterlife of slavery in Lose Your Mother, a journey along the Atlantic slave route. The afterlife of slavery can be characterized by the enduring presence of slavery's racialized violence still present in contemporary society. I wanted to engage the past, knowing that its perils and dangers still threatened, and that even now lives hung in the balance. Slavery had established a measure of man and a ranking of life and worth that has yet to be undone. If slavery persists as an issue in the political life of Black America, it is not because of an antiquarian obsession with bygone days or the burden of a too long memory, but because Black lives are still imperiled and devalued by a racial calculus and a political arithmetic that were entrenched centuries ago. This is the afterlife of slavery, skewed life chances, limited access to health and education, premature death, incarceration, and impoverishment. I, too, am the afterlife of slavery. When she went back to Africa to learn more about slavery, she came back to the United States having learned more about herself. So basically, the afterlife of slavery is what we're living in right now. Those things that have been put into place to make slavery possible still have their effects now because no one went back in there and said, hey, this was because of slavery. Let's take this out. This was because of slavery. Let's take this out. This was... None of that happened. What happened was slavery was abolished. All rules stayed the same. Everything stayed the same. The way that people did things stayed the same. And we kept it moving. And so that is the afterlife of slavery. Saida Hartman has made literary and theoretical, my gosh, what's up with my speaking today, theoretical contributions to the understanding of slavery. Her first book, Scenes of Subjection, Terror, Slavery, and Self-Making in 19th Century America is an examination of the intersection of slavery 
gender, and the development of, pro of progressivism in the United States through the exploration of blank genealogies, memory, and the lingering effects of racism. In her second book, Lose Your Mother, A Journey Along the Atlantic Slave Route, she confronts the troubled relationships among memory, narratives, and representation. She focuses on the non-history of the slave because the way in which slavery erased any conventional modality for writing an intelligible past. By weaving her own biography into an historic construct, she explores and evokes the non-spaces of Black experience, the experience through which the African captive became a slave, became a non-person, became alienated from personhood. Through these experiences came the title, and I quote, because of the slave trade, you lose your mother. If you know your history, you know where you come from. To lose your mother was to be denied your kin, country, and identity. To lose your mother was to forget your past. In doing my research of Saida Hartman, here's something that I did not realize that when archives are being put together, a lot of the information that relates to Black people, enslaved people, Indigenous people, gets pushed to the margins, just as we people get pushed to the margins. That information is often sent away to a place to lie in wait for when someone is ready to go through that information. Basically, it's not taken as important as history that relates to white people in this country. And the other thing that I realized in researching Ms. Saida Hartman is that there are very few Black people, Black women especially, who are brought into this realm or who are allowed to do this work because it's quite possible that these women might take this information and make it important. But if the information that you're working with isn't that important to you, what are you going to do? Push it to the margins, send it off to the storage facility where everything is kept and we'll get to it when we get to it. So this is one of the things that she really works to combat and she talks about and she talks about it a lot um, because it's important to archive information properly in order for future generations to know and to understand what was going on not just now but going on back then as people want to dig into history and find who they are and find where they come from or find out different things it's important that these archives are done and that all information is archived not just a portion that seems quote unquote to be important to whomever is doing the archiving at the time. In her work, she writes about the minor lives, which is kind of what we were just talking about. She talks about the minor lives that easily slip in the archive into oblivion. They're tacked away as uncomfortable facts. They are overshadowed shadowed by large figures, 
white and famous men. So we're talking about a photograph, which is a photographic collection of a nude African-American girl posed as Venus. The photograph is in Tom Eakin's photographic collection, right? She's posed as Venus, but she's anonymous. She's a placeholder for all the possibilities and the dangers awaiting young black women in the first decades of the 20th century. In being denied a name, maybe she refused to give one, she represents all the other girls who follow in her path. Anonymity enables her to stand in for all the others. The minor figure yields to the chorus. All the hurt and the promise of the wayward are hers to bear. If you want to learn more about Saida Hartman, I'm going to have links in the show notes about everyone I'm sharing with you today, and that would be no different. Remember, she is alive and she is working right now at Columbia University in New York. My next guest, the next person I want to talk to you about is Audrey Lord. She was born Audrey Geraldine Lord, and she had a Y at the end of her name. But when she was really young, she decided she was going to take the Y off because it just seemed more interesting and artistic and symmetrically, artistically symmetrical to her to have both her first and last name end with E. That's how interesting she was. She was born in 1934. She was an American writer, a feminist, a womanist librarian, civil rights activist, and she always described herself as a Black lesbian mother warrior poet. She dedicated both her life and her creative talent to confronting and addressing injustices of racism, sexism, classism, and homophobia. She was born in New York City to Caribbean immigrant parents. Her father was from Barbados and her mother was from Grenada. She was the third daughter and being incredibly nearsighted, she was close to being legally blind. As a child, she struggled with communication and came to appreciate the power of poetry as a form of expression. She would use poetry to communicate so that if you asked her how she was feeling, she would reply by reciting a poem. Around 12, she began writing her own poetry and connecting with others at her school who were considered quote-unquote outcasts because that's how she felt herself. In 1954, she found herself spending time at the National University of Mexico. She described it as a time of affirmation and renewal. During that time, she confirmed her identity on personal and artistic levels as both a lesbian and a poet. From 1972 to 1987, she lived on Staten Island. During that time, along with writing and teaching, she co-founded Kitchen Table Women of Color Press. Unfortunately, Kitchen Table Women of Color Press went defunct 
shortly after her death in 1992. Because I did look it up because I was really, really interested in reaching out to them to see what work they were doing now. And if maybe someone there was could be a spokesperson. Unfortunately, it's no longer functional. However, in 1977, she became an associate of the Women's Institute for Freedom of the Press, which is and currently is an American nonprofit publishing organization working to increase communication between women and connect the public with forms of women-based media. They, the Women's Institute for Freedom of the Press, WIFP, is functional today, and I did look them up, and I would encourage you to do the same. The link is in the show notes. Audrey believed that instead of fighting systemic issues through violence, language was a powerful form of resistance and encouraged every woman to speak up instead of fight back. She lived in Germany from 1984 to 1992 when she returned to St. Croix with her longtime partner. What's really interesting about Audre Lorde is that she was so introspective. She thought about who she was and all the layers that made her who she was, and she expressed that in different ways in her writing. Lord focused her discussion of difference not only on differences between groups of women, but between conflicting differences within the individual. I am defined as other in every group I'm part of, she would say. She would say that the outsider, both strength and weakness, yet without community, there is certainly no liberation, no future, only the most vulnerable and temporary armistice between me and my oppression. She described herself both as part of a continuum of women and a concert of voices within herself. And I think it's really important to think about that because as we consider feminism, as we consider women's rights, it's important to understand that Although we raise our voices together, we each individually have so many voices within us that speak to who we are. And she thought about this constantly. Her conception of her many layers of selfhood is replicated in the multi-genres of her work. She worked in so many different ways. She published poetry, she wrote articles, she wrote books. She did a number of things, and in all of those things, she tried to bring forth the person that she was in an effort to help us all do the same. Audre Lorde is incredible. In her very personal, deeply personal book, Zami, A New Spelling of My Name, which was published in 1982, subtitled A Biomythography, it chronicles her childhood and adulthood, and the narrative deals with the evolution of her sexuality and her self-awareness. In Sister Outsider, Essays and Speeches, published in 1984, Lord asserts the necessity of communicating the experience of marginalized groups to make their struggles visible 
in a repressive society. She emphasizes the need for different groups of people, particularly white women and African-American women, to find common ground in their lived experience, but also to face difference directly and use it as a source of strength rather than alienation. She repeatedly emphasizes the need for community in the struggle to build a better world, how to constructively channel the anger and rage incited by oppression is another prominent theme throughout her works. Her most famous essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, is included in Sister Outsider, the collection that was printed in 1984. She questions the scope and ability for change to be instigated when examining problems through a racist, patriarchal lens. She insists that women see differences between other women not as something to be tolerated, but something that is necessary to generate power and to actively be in the world. In her book, Age, Race, Class, and Sex, Women Redefining Difference, Audrey emphasizes the importance of educating others. However, she stresses that in order to educate others, one must first be educated. Empowering people who are doing the work does not mean using privilege to overstep and overpower such groups, but rather privilege must be used to hold the doors open for other allies. Lord describes the inherent problems within society by saying, Racism, the belief in the inherent superiority of one race over all others and thereby the right to dominance. Sexism, the belief in the inherent superiority of one sex over the other and thereby the right to dominance. Ageism, heterosexism, elitism, classism. Lord finds herself among some of these deviant groups in society which set the tone for the status quo and what not to be in society. She argues that women feel pressure to conform to their oneness before recognizing the separation among them due to their manyness or aspects of their identity. She stresses that this behavior exactly what explains feminists' inability to forge the kind of alliances necessary to create a better world. In relation to non-intersectional feminism in the United States, she said, those of us who stand outside the circle of this society's definition of acceptable women, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. I don't know about you, but that really resonated with me. And it really helped me to get a clearer understanding of how we have to do it differently. 
We have to understand who we are and how we can work together, who others are, the multiple persons of ourselves and the multiple persons of others. And we have to confront those multiple persons, not in a an aggressive way, but in a way that we can say, okay, we have all these multiplicities going on. How do we get them to work together toward the goal of freeing us from the master's house? I say all the time, things have been set up in a certain way to make it very easy for only a small demographic of the population. The rest of the population has to conform to those norms in order to be okay, in order to not feel that we are going to lose our jobs or lose our standing or or lose whatever it is that we've worked hard to gain. And yet, that is what keeps the status quo. Audrey's writings are based on the theory of difference. The idea that the binary opposition between men and women is overly simplistic. Although feminists have found it necessary to present the illusion of a solid, unified whole, the category of women itself is full of subdivisions. Lord identified issues of race, class, age, and ageism, sex, and sexuality, and later in her life, chronic illness and disability the latter becoming more prominent in her latter years as she lived with cancer. She wrote all of these factors as fundamental to her experience of being a woman. She argued that although differences in gender have received all the focus, it is essential that these other differences are also recognized and addressed. She writes, she puts her emphasis on the authenticity of experience. She wants her difference acknowledged, not judged. She does not want to be subsumed into the one general category of woman. This theory is today known as Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality. While acknowledging that the differences between women are wide and varied, most of her work are concerned with two subsets that concerned her the most, race and sexuality. Because of the way she wrote and because of what she wrote about, she was criticized quite often. Many white feminists were angered by her brand of feminism. In her 1994 essay, The Master's Tool will, Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, she attacked what she believed was underlying racism within feminism, describing it as unrecognized dependence on the patriarchy. She argued that by denying difference in the category of women, white feminists merely furthered old systems of oppression and that in doing that, they were preventing any real lasting change. Her argument aligned white feminists who did not recognize race as a feminist issue with white male slave masters, describing both as agents of oppression. As infuriating as that may sound or as that may seem, it is a truth that needs to be said more than once. I remember working with an organization and 
someone saying, I don't understand why they think that we are, that this organization is run by or is governed by white men when the governing board of the organization is equally separated in white men and white women. And I had to kind of explain, it doesn't matter when we see white women and white men doing the governing because white women often go in deference to white men. The needs are much the same, save gender. So when someone of color is looking on and they see white men and white women, it's automatically an idea of, oh, look, this organization is run by white men because white women tend to be in deference to white men. Now, you may not agree with me, but I think that this is what she was saying. But it also depends on your ability to see and to understand that there is more to women than simply being women. We have to understand that all those different things, different parts of us, all those intersectionalities are important. And that is one of the reasons why we as Black women find that feminism is a white feminism because it doesn't take into consideration those intersectionalities. And she, Audre Lorde, was a voice for that because there's also a sexuality and gender that is not taken into the conversation. I mean, how often do we have to say that Black transgendered women need to be part of the conversation. They need to have their voices heard, but it never seems to go as it needs to go. In her book, Age, Race, Class, and Sex, Women Redefining Different, she writes, certainly there are very real differences between us of race, age, and sex, but it is not those differences between us that are separating us. It is rather our refusal to recognize those differences and to examine the distortions which result from our misnaming them and their effects upon human behavior and expectation. She also goes on to say, as white women ignore their built-in privilege of whiteness and define women in terms of their own existence alone, then women of color become the other. Self-identified as a 49-year-old black lesbian feminist socialist mother of two, Lord is considered as other, deviant, inferior, or just plain wrong. In the eyes of the normative white male heterosexual capitalist social hierarchy, we speak not of human difference, but of human deviance, she writes. In this respect, her ideology coincides with womanism, which allows black women to affirm and celebrate their color and culture in a way that feminism does not. When Lord talks talks about racism, sexism, ageism, heterosexism, elitism, and classism. She puts them all together and explains that an ism is an idea that what is being privileged is superior and has the right to govern anything else. Belief in the superiority of one aspect of the mythical norm. She explains that a mythical norm is what all bodies should be. 
the mythical norm of U.S. culture is white, thin, male, young, heterosexual, Christian, and financially secure. Audre Lorde's work on Black feminism continues to be examined today because it's so relevant. In it, she writes, I urge each one of us here to reach down into that deep place of knowledge inside herself and touch that terror and loathing of any difference that lives there. See whose face it wears. Then the personal as the political can begin to illuminate all our choices. What she was doing was urging us to embrace the political rather than fear it, which will lead to an improvement in society for them. Black women sharing close ties with each other, politically or emotionally, are not the enemies of black men. Too frequently, however, some black men attempt to rule by fear those black women who are more ally than enemy. I think what you'll find is that Audre Lorde shows us that personal identity is found within the connections between seem seemingly different parts of ourselves based in lived experience and that our authority to speak comes from this lived experience. Personal identity is often associated with the vi visual aspect of a person. In the cancer journals, she wrote, if I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into another people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. This is important because an identity is more than just what people see or think of a person. It is something that must be defined by the individual. The house of difference is a phrase that has stuck with Audrey's identity theories. Her idea was that everyone is different from each other and it is the collective differences that make us who we are instead of one little thing. Focusing on all the aspects of identity brings people together more than choosing one piece of an identity. On August 27, 1983, Audre Lorde delivered an address apart from the litany of commitment at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Today we march, she said, lesbians and gay men and our children standing in our own names together with all our struggling sisters and brothers here and around the world, in the Middle East, in Central America, in the Caribbean and South Africa, sharing our commitment to work for a joint, livable future. We know we do not have to become copies of each other to be able to work together. We know that when we join hands across the table of our difference, our diversity gives us great power. When we can arm ourselves with the strength and vision from all of our diverse communities, then we will in truth all be free at last. In 1962, Audre Lorde married attorney Edwin Rollins, who was a white gay man. She and Rollins divorced in 1970 after having two children. In 1966, Audre Lorde became head librarian at Town School Library in New York City, where she remained until 1968. During her time in Mississippi in 1968, she met Frances Clayton, a white lesbian and professor of psychology 
who became her romantic partner until 1989. Their relationship continued for the remainder of her life. Audrey was briefly romantically involved with the sculptor and painter Mildred Thomas after meeting her in Nigeria at the Second World Black and African Festival of Arts and Culture. The two were involved during that time that Thompson lived in Washington, D.C. Lord and her life partner, Black feminist Dr. Gloria Joseph, resided together on Joseph's native land of St. Croix. Lord was first diagnosed with breast cancer in 1978 and underwent a mastectomy. Six years later, she found that her breast cancer had metastasized to her liver. After her first diagnosis, she wrote the Cancer Journals, which won the American Library Association Gay Caucus Book of the Year Award in 1981. She was featured as a subject of a documentary called A Litany for Survival, The Life and Work of Audre Lorde, which shows her as an author, poet, human rights activist, feminist, lesbian, a teacher, a survivor, and a crusader against bigotry. She is quoted as saying, What I leave behind has a life of its own. I've said this about poetry. I've said it about children. Well, in a sense, I'm saying it about the very artifact of who I have been. Audrey died of breast cancer at the age of 58 on November 17, 1992 in St. Croix, where she had been living with Gloria Joseph. In an African naming ceremony after her death, she took the name Gamba Adisa, which means warrior, she who makes her meaning known. A poem for women in rage. A killing summer heat wraps up the city, emptied of all who are not bound to stay. A black woman waits for a white woman, leans against the railing in the upper west side street at intermission. The distant sounds of Broadway dim, until I can hear the voice of sparrows, like a promise I await. The woman I love, our slice of time, a place beyond the city's pain. In the corner phone booth, a woman glassed in by reflections of the street between us, her white face dangles, a tapestry of disaster seen, through a veneer of order, her mouth drawn, an ill-used roadmap to eyes without core, a bottled heart, impeccable credentials of old pain. The veneer cracks open, hate launches through the glaze into my afternoon, our eyes touch like hot wire, and the street snaps into nightmare. A woman with white eyes is clutching a bottle of Fleischmann's gin, is fumbling at her waistband, is pulling a butcher knife from her ragged hands, her hands arcs back. You black bitch! The heavy blade spins out toward me, slow motion. Years of flurry, years of fury surge upward like a wall. I do not hear it clatter to the pavement at my feet. A gear of ancient nightmare churns swift in familiar dread and silence. But this time I am awake, released. I smile. Now, this time is my turn. I bend to the knife, my ears blood drumming across the street, my lover's voice, the only moving sound within white heat. Don't touch it. I straighten, weaken, 
then start down again, hungry for resolution. Simple as anger and so close at hand, my fingers reach for the familiar blade, the known grip of wood against my palm. I have held it to the whetstone a thousand nights for this, escorting my fury through my sleep like a cherished friend, to wake in the stink of rage beside the sleep white face of love. The keen steel of a dreamt knife, sparks honed from the wetted edge with tortured shriek, between my lover's voice and the gray spinning, a choice of pain or fury, slashing across judgment like a crimson scar, I could open her up to my anger with a point sharpened upon love. In the deathland, my lover's voice fades, like the roar of a train derailed on the other side of the river. Every white woman's face I love and distrust is upon it, eating green grapes from a paper bag, marking yellow exam books tucked into a manila folder, orderly as the last thought before death, I throw the switch. Through screams of crumpled steel, I search the wreckage for a ticket of hatred, my lover's voice calling, a knife at her throat. In this steaming Isle of the Dead, I am weeping to learn the names of those streets. My feet have worn thin with running and why they will never serve me nor ever lead me home. Don't touch it, she cries. I straighten myself in confusion. A drunken woman is running away down the west side street. My lover's voice moves me to a shadowy clearing. Corralled in fantasy, the woman with white eyes has vanished to become her own nightmare. A French butcher blade hangs in my house, love's token. I remember this knife. It carved its message into my sleeping. She only read its warning written upon my face. It has been so hard trying to sift through all the amazing women that I have been researching in the past few weeks. But those are the first three. I hope that you learned something new and I hope that you're inspired by these amazing women who did and are doing amazing things in this life. Women who have pushed things forward, women who have shown us the way, women who are have carried us and are carrying us on their backs. Women who give us the permission to be exactly who we are, to do the things that we're meant to do and to go forward. I hope that you've enjoyed it. And if you have, please share with a friend. It would mean so much to me if you would share this episode, but also this podcast with friends and neighbors and let them know that we're talking about things that are really important right now. So as we close out this episode, I want you to take with you the thought that these women are only but a few of the many women in history. And like I like to do at the end of every episode that I do on my own, I want to give you an action step. Information about each of these women is linked in the show notes. I would really appreciate it if you took the time to may buy one of their books, examine one of their teachings, reach out, do something that 
is actionable after hearing this information. I'm linking as many things as possible in the show notes. And so I'm hoping that it will give you a one-stop shop to being able to do at least one thing, take action in one way to move this work forward. We can and we will make a difference, but only when we realize how important it is that our voices rise together. As Audre Lorde says, as we understand and confront our differences, but we raise our voices together for all that is womanhood. Happy Women's History Month. I will see you in two weeks. Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please leave a review. It would mean the world, but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it. In which case, it would be awesome if you help support my work over at patreon.com backslash Cedrola Maruska. And finally, before you go, don't forget diversitydish.com. I'd love to work with you. See you soon.